This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Film Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Abrams, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lee Unkrich about his new book, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Lee is the Academy Award-winning director of the animated features Toy Story 3 and Coco. During his 25 years at Pixar Animation Studios, he played a variety of key creative roles on nearly every feature film made at the studio. Lee and his fellow Pixar directors were honoured at the 66th Venice International Film Festival with the Golden Lion for Lifetime Achievement. Lee, welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to be here, Nathan. And it's great to have you. Um, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, uh, well, I, you just kind of summed up uh, kind of briefly my career. Um, I, you know, I... I grew up in the Midwest in the United States and came out to California to go to film school and uh, worked in the film industry for several years before I ultimately moved up to the San Francisco Bay Area to work at Pixar uh, back in 1994 on the first Toy Story film. And uh, I started as an, a film editor on that movie. Um, and then I edited a couple more movies and then started uh, directing co-directing several films, including Monsters, Inc. and Finding Nemo, and uh, and then started directing myself solo. And as you mentioned, I directed Toy Story 3 and, and Coco. Uh, and kind of during the last several years that I was at Pixar, um, last maybe five or six years, I, I started working on this book project, uh, kind of in my spare time. So how did you come to The Shining? Well, I first saw The Shining when I was 12 years old, when it first came out in theaters in 1980. And um, I somehow became really transfixed with it immediately. Uh, and a few days after I saw the film, I uh, picked up a paperback copy of Stephen King's novel. I wasn't aware of Stephen King at that point, And I wanted to dive into the feeling of the movie more. So I read King's book, which I loved, but I also recognized that it was very different from Stanley Kubrick's film. Um, but I enjoyed it in it, you know, in its own way, definitely. Um, and one thing that I remember very early on is that 
in the middle of that paperback novel, there were a bunch of stills from The Shining. And at some point, I don't quite remember when, I realized that one of the stills was from a scene that I didn't remember being in the movie. And I became kind of um, fascinated with that notion that maybe there were other scenes shot that weren't in the film. And at some point in there, I also learned about um, the fact that The Shining originally had a whole epilogue uh, at the at the end of the film that Stanley Kubrick had decided to cut out of the film just a few days after it had been released in theaters in Los Angeles and New York. Uh, it, it, all I knew is that it was a scene that took place in a hospital um, where the hotel manager went to visit Wendy and Danny in the hospital. And again, I was fascinated by this notion that there was kind of more to this world than I had seen in the film. So um, that kind of coupled with uh, kind of my burgeoning interest in becoming a filmmaker myself, which I, which I can draw a line straight back to The Shining uh, for that, um, I, it just remained kind of a really central um, interest and eventually obsession of mine for decades. And uh, as people may know, Stanley Kubrick died in 1999 as he was finishing his final film, Eyes Wide Shut. And some years after uh, he passed away, his family donated the contents of his archives to the London College of Communications in, in, uh, in London. And um, I got a chance to visit the archives when I was in London doing press for Toy Story 3 back in 2010. And for the very first time, I was able to kind of see this wealth of uh, material having to do with um, the development of the film. I got glimpses into Stanley Kubrick's writing process with his co-writer, uh, Diane Johnson. And uh, I also saw a lot of behind-the-scenes photographs I'd never seen. Um, Stanley Kubrick was famously very um, private and protective of uh, anything having to do with his films. He really just wanted the final films to speak for themselves. He, he didn't really want people to know how the sausage was made, so to speak. And so it was kind of a rare privilege to be able to kind of get a glimpse into this private world of Stanley and his creative process. And it was at that time that I first had the notion of um, creating a book on the making of The Shining. Because The Shining has been written about extensively over the years, but primarily from a critical analysis perspective, um, just kind of the theories about its meanings, et cetera. But there was very little about the actual production of the film. And so essentially it was a book that I wished was in the world and it wasn't. And so I set off on this, what ultimately became a 10-year journey to, to create this book. I, um, I approached the, the Stanley Kubrick estate in 2012 and spoke with Jan Harlan, um, Stanley's brother-in-law and, and the executive producer of The Shining. And I uh, proposed the idea of me doing this book. And that was really the beginning of, uh, of this journey. They were, they were excited at the prospect of creating the book and um, were very supportive of me through this whole process. That's great, thank you. Um, you went to the archives in two thousand and ten. That mu that must make you one of the earliest and um, sort of longest serving researchers in the archive. Uh, over that period. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I, I actually I should know what year it opened. I don't remember. Um, two thousand seven. 
2007. Yeah. So it was pretty early on. I mean, of course, the moment I heard about it, I was, I wanted to try to go there. Um, and it's not easy to visit. You can't just walk in off the street. Um, you know, you have to have some kind of legitimate research purpose. So, uh, I kind of pulled some strings behind the scenes and managed to get in that first time. Um, but of course, once I had the support of the Kubrick estate and Warner brothers to do this book, um, they, they pretty much threw the doors wide open for me and allowed me to set up shop there and, uh, basically dive into every last thing that they had. No, it's a fantastic resource. And I'd have to say that probably the study of Kubrick, it's a game changer for the study of Kubrick. Um, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's very easy to not to, to write anything anymore and not look at what's in the archive. At least you kind of have to. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I, I don't know how Stanley himself would feel about it. Um, I actually spoke with his wife, Christiana, um, in December, uh, cause we had a, a big unveiling event for the book at Chittickbury, uh, the Kubrick estate. And, um, I, I said to her, you know, I, I had, I said, I have very mixed feelings about being here unveiling this book because it's exciting to be in Stanley's space and, and, and where we were having this event was in the part of the house where Stanley's private offices used to be, um, but at the same time, I said, I don't know that Stanley would have wanted this book to be in the world. Um, and she, you know, she said, no, 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 I think he would be okay with it. Um, I don't know that that's true. I don't know if she was just being nice to me. But Stanley, you know, Stanley really worked hard to maintain a very, uh, to maintain, maintain control over his vision. Uh, how people perceived him and how people perceived him as a director. And I think he, um, he liked to maintain the, this illusion that, um, his, his films were just kind of birthed into the world fully formed. Um, he never spoke a lot about the struggles that he absolutely went through on every film he made. Um, and the shining was no exception. Um, so one of the things that was really interesting for me doing this book is it really humanized Stanley Kubrick for me, uh, especially for me as a filmmaker, I was able to see him struggle through the creative process. Um, you know, looking at all the different drafts of the screenplay and knowing that he hadn't figured out how he was going to end the film, even when he was well into production. Um, those are normal things for filmmakers to go through, but that's not something we think of when we think of Stanley Kubrick. You know, we just, we, you know, we put him up on this pedestal as being a brilliant filmmaker, which he absolutely uh, is and was. But um, he was also a human, and he struggled and uh, didn't always have the answers. You know, I, I completely. One thing I've learned about looking at his entire career is he struggled from film to film, and often in the earlier, so even just to get the financing. Um, but the interesting thing is, is I think he set himself such a high bar. Um, and didn't repeat himself. So each time he's dealing with a different genre and setting a high bar, that I think that added an extra strain. Did that come across? Um, well, in- I mean, I think it's, you know, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey was seen as such a unfathomably high watermark, not just for himself, but in cinema, that, uh, you know, he was rightfully branded a genius uh, at that point. And... Um, you know, I, I'm sure on some level he had to be aware of that and, you know, was very careful in, in what he chose subsequently to make. 
um, so that he never repeated himself and so that he had the opportunity to continue to create interesting cinema. But it had to have been some degree of pressure for him, um, for sure. I mean, again, he's human. <laughs> so he, uh, you know, he, I mean, not only was he a, a, a just a kind of a creative filmmaker, but he was also a businessman. And, um, you know, he had kind of carved out a very uh, privileged way of working that most, not all, if not all directors in the industry uh, have not been able to share. He had just had complete control over his films. Um, basically, once the studio approved uh, the screenplay, once he had finished a screenplay for any given film, his deal was such that the studio wouldn't see the film again until it was completely finished. And I, you know, I don't, maybe there are a tiny handful of filmmakers now who can work that way, but not many. Um, but he knew that having that privilege came with a responsibility to make the studios money. I mean, they weren't just going to throw money at him to make films and have him do kind of vanity projects that nobody wanted to see. I mean, he always, he tried to make things that were interesting to himself, of course, but he also knew that, um, they needed to be commercial. Um, and that's, that's honestly part of the reason that he chose to make the shining, uh, because his previous film had been Barry Lyndon in 1975, and it was a, a big commercial flop. And so Stanley definitely had a lot of pressure on himself to uh, to give the studio a hit. So um, that's a big reason why he chose to adapt Stephen King's novel, because Stephen King was up and coming as a newly best-selling author and um, uh, very popular. And uh, I think Stanley saw that as an opportunity to maybe create something that uh, could be a bigger hit for himself and for the studio. It's an interesting move to go from, as you mentioned, to science fiction in 2001. And I suppose we could describe A Clockwork Orange as a science fiction to an 18th century costume drama and then to a horror movie. Well, again, he never wanted to repeat himself. Um, the only way I can see that he ever really did repeat himself was that he'd made two war films between Paths of Glory and Full Metal Jacket. But of course, we're talking about two very different wars and, and Paths of Glory really isn't a, a war film. It's more of a courtroom procedural um, in the end. So yeah, he, I, he was aware that he did not want to repeat himself and he also didn't want to make anything that he didn't deem original. Um, you know, he, he, he was developing a film called The Aryan Papers for a long time, which was going to be his Holocaust film. Um, but then when he saw Schindler's List, he he put it away because he thought, I can't top that and I shouldn't try to. Um, you know, he thought that Spielberg had made the quintessential Holocaust film. And so he, despite all the work he had put into the Aryan papers, he, um, he decided to move on and find something different. Mm. Just to go back to something you said earlier about um, what motivated you on this project, the um, discovering the stills of the hospital epilogue. Um, it's a hospital I know well, actually, um, the Royal Free in North London. Um, the counterfactual question, had he kept that in, how do you think it would have changed the film? Do you think the film's better well, for not having it? I haven't seen it, so it's really impossible for me to say. I, I have read the scene. I, you know, I've read the screenplay. And I've talked to people who who saw it. There were there were some people who actually got to see it in theaters before Stanley cut it out. Um, and honestly, most of the people say that they thought it was not necessary. 
and it ended the film on an odd note. Um, and I think Stanley, I, I know that Stanley struggled himself with whether it should be in the film or not during the editing process. He, he kept repeatedly taking it out and putting it back in. And it was actually um, his daughter, Vivian, uh, who convinced him at the 11th hour to, to put it back in. But clearly, a few days after release, he he changed his mind and decided it really needed to be out of the film. So he took the unprecedented move of uh, having uh, a couple of editors, one on each coast, uh, drive around in a limo to all the theaters where The Shining was playing and physically cutting the scene out of the print. I don't I don't think that's ever happened ever on any other film. I've never heard of anything like that. Um. Before I um, ask you to describe the book, I've just got another question. Um, the Shining has attracted a lot of theories. Um, I mean, out of all of Kubrick's movies, probably the most written about, and maybe alongside 2001. Um, what, what, what do you think it is about The Shining that's attracted all this, um, all, all these theories, like those in Room Two, in the film Room Two Three Seven? But there's there's many more besides. Why do you think that's the case? Well, uh, I think several reasons. Um, one of them is that Stanley on all of his films worked very hard to not tie things up in neat little bows. You know, he wanted the audience to think about what they'd seen and interpret it however they wanted to. Um, you know, I know that he made decisions on all of his films, and I know specifically many of the decisions he made on The Shining of things to that, that, that he thought were important. At one point, he had written them, he had gone through the effort of filming them, only to ultimately cut them out of the film. And in every case, I think it was in an effort to um, make the film more enigmatic, um, to, to just not answer all the questions. And anytime you have a film that's like not neatly answering all the questions for the audience, you're opening yourself up to, of course, a lot of interpretation and, uh, and analysis and people kind of contemplating meanings. So that was also coupled with the fact that on The Shining specifically, um, Stanley early on when he was writing the, the the film with Diane Johnson, they spent a lot of time talking about a, a lot of other kind of inspirational source material. And, and one of those uh, pieces was an essay on the uncanny written by Sigmund Freud. And Stanley spent a lot of time reading that, thinking about it, talking about it. Um, the, the essay essentially talked about uh, Freud's theories about what, elicits a feeling of uncanniness in a person. And the fact that the world of art specifically is, is best suited for creating a feeling of uncanniness. So, uh, so Stanley absorbed that. And, and I think it guided a lot of decisions he made on the film. I mean, you, you can't argue that the film is a very uncanny film. It, it gets under your skin and, um, and you feel unsettled watching that film. Certainly. And that's, I think, because of a lot of the choices that Stanley make and some, made. And some of them are are really kind of in the subconscious. Um, one of the things that Freud talks about in his essay is the use of uh, kind of repeating things, like things that shouldn't repeat repeating. Um, for instance, uh, the idea that somebody might live at a certain address 
and you see that man leave that address and then he gets on a bus and the bus happens to be the same number bus as the person's address and and so on and so on you know encountering the same number throughout throughout the day in a way that maybe you don't even notice but subconsciously you feel it and it gives an uncanny feeling of somebody kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes, like a, 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 a greater force somehow. And so Stanley played with that in The Shining. I have notes of his where he's writing down numbers on pages and figuring out places where he can repeat numbers. Um, and so he most definitely was doing that kind of thing. And once people are aware that he was doing some uh, kind of manipulation behind the scenes, that then opens them up to thinking that everything in the film was by design, um, and which is not the case. You know, people people look at a chair disappearing in the background of a scene and they think, oh, what is Stanley doing there? What is he trying to say by that chair disappearing? When in reality, it was either a continuity mistake or in many cases, Stanley... He was so concerned with individual photographic compositions that he he wouldn't hesitate to remove something from the background if he thought it was messing with the composition. Um, he never anticipated a day and age where people would be able to digitize his films and overlay frames and do the kind of microscopic analysis that that people have done with his films. And again, they want to try to ascribe meaning to all of it. Um, but... Um, you know, in most cases, well, I, I don't know if I'd say most cases, but quite a few of the cases, there, there's really nothing. There's no there there behind it. And even Stanley was aware that by The Shining that people were going to uh, really dig into his films. I have an anecdote in the book uh, where they were shooting a scene and uh, after they cut, Stanley turned and winked at a crew member and said, let's let the French film critics figure that one out. So he, you know, he, he was aware of it and he, he, he toyed with it. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, not, none of it was being done frivolously. I mean, it was all, it was all being, it was all done for, for an end purpose, you know, even if it was a decision he was making long after production was over during the editorial process. I think in part it attests to his sort of godlike reputation that there could be no intentional errors. Um, that you sort of alluded to earlier when you talked about um, Stanley's reputation. Yeah, yeah, no, but he, you know, he didn't always know what he was doing, and he, he was constantly asking questions of everyone around him, not only to learn from them, you know, absorb their knowledge, but he was constantly asking people what they thought of different scenes. And you know, I, I know in Full Metal Jacket, he didn't know how he was going to end the film for a very long time, and he was constantly bringing the actors together and having conversations about how they thought the film should end. So he was, people don't think of him as a collaborative director, but he was a very collaborative director. In the end, of course, he was making all the decisions that he wanted to make as the director of the film, but he, he questioned everybody, I think, to try to kind of create as much fodder for him to chew on and, you know, make the final decisions that he was going to make about his films. Um, just to go back to the uh, numbers that Kubrick was doodling. Mm-hmm. What numbers did you come across? Um, I have one instance where, uh, you know, in the movie, the the hotel room where the woman is in the bathtub um, is room 237, but in Stephen King's novel, it's 217. Um, and so on kind of early galleys of Stephen King's novel be, before Stanley later um, changed the room to 237. Um, I have 
notes of him writing down that number 217 and speculating maybe that 217 could be the Torrance family address uh, in Colorado of their apartment at the beginning of the movie. Um, he, you know, he kind of gleefully noted that his initials SK were the same as Stephen King's initials SK. I think he took some delight in that coincidence. And I think he also took delight in the fact that Jack's name in the book, Jack is the same as Jack's name, Jack Nicholson. And, and then the one kid that they managed to find out of the thousands that they auditioned uh, ended up being named Danny, the same as in the novel. So he, yeah, he just, I think he delighted in that. I thought what was very smart in a change from the novel is that Jack drinks Jack Daniels. Um, it's <laughs> yeah, it's martinis in the novel. It's another little um, uh, uh, thing. And, that and, he did, and he didn't even make that change until quite late. Um, you know, I, 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 I note in the book that they brought in a, a bartender from the Savoy to teach uh, actor Joe Turkle how to make martinis. Um, and he spent all this time learning how to make martinis only at the last minute for Stanley to change it and have him serve him Jack Daniels at the bar. <laughs> oh, I heard that one about you. Um, the, uh, to go back to the numbers, um, are you familiar with Jeffrey Cox's theory of um, the multiples of seven leading to the number 42 that recur through the movie? Yeah, and I think there has to be some truth to that. I, you know, there's no, there's no record of it in the archives and, and – you know, I spoke with Diane Johnson about that, and she didn't have any particular memory of that. But Stanley didn't discuss everything. There was a lot that was just in his head. Um, but you, you, you kind of can't deny that, that, yeah, that number seven and multiples of seven play a part in the film. Um, you know, when, when the Timberline Lodge wrote to Stanley and asked him to change the hotel room from 217 because they had a room 217 and they were worried people wouldn't want to stay there after the movie came out, he changed it to 237. Why 237? It could have been anything. It could have been any number, but he picked 237. And um, that's when things start getting interesting because if you multiply 2 times 3 times 7, you get 42. And the number 42 figures into the film in different ways. Uh, Danny has a 42 number on his shirt in his first scene at the beginning of the movie. There's a later scene where Wendy is watching the summer of 42 on a television in the lobby. Um, half of 42 is 21 and it's 1921 where the, 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 the July 4th ball takes place uh, that Jack uh, appears in, in the photo at the very end of the film. So again, there's so much craziness talked about having to do with The Shining that it's easy to look at this and say, oh, well, that's just crazy, too. But there's enough evidence and there are too many coincidences to uh, to just kind of write it off out of hand the, the way you would, say, the crazy Apollo 11, faking the Apollo 11 landing theories go. So, again, it just adds to the it adds to, you know, Kubrick he kind of brought it on himself <laughs> because he did some of this in the film. Again, people want to, you know, people like to solve puzzles and I think they see the shining as kind of one giant puzzle to be solved. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard Jan Harlan say that, you know, the idea that the shining is about the Holocaust is absurd, um, which is Jeffrey Cox's theory, but, but, you know, this, this recurrence of the 42 as um, whether he considered it as being the date of the final solution or not, you know, and, and, and that sort of re- repetition in the movie does lend itself to this kind of... Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, the the, the, for, the linking it to the Holocaust seems like a, a major stretch to me, unless it was something completely subconscious for Stanley. I mean, he would have had... I don't. I just don't see any reason why he would have done that. But 
Uh, but the other essay uh, about the connections to the Native American genocide, I mean, that was very much true. A lot of that, you know, Stanley did discuss that with Diane Johnson. And, um, you know, there are a lot of Native American motifs that are used design-wise all over the film. And Stuart Ullman, the manager, even discusses the fact that the Overlook was built on ancient Indian burial grounds. I mean, so so that was something that, that, that Stanley was thinking about for sure. But to call the, the, the film a, a kind of a metaphor for uh, for that genocide, I think, is is an overstretch, in my opinion. Mm. Um, all right. I've skirted around talking about the book, but let's get to that now. So you've done this decade of research, um, and it's a mammoth volume. Uh, and uh, would you like to tell us um, how, how you've structured the book um, and also its sort of unique design features? Sure. Um, I, I should back up and... Um, mention my my co-author on the book, uh, Jonathan Rinsler, J.W. Rinsler. Um, when I first approached uh, Jan Harlan about doing the book, he said, great, yes, we'd love to see a book like this. But the problem is we've just been approached by someone else who's proposed a similar book and we can't, we can't support two. So you need to figure this out. <laughs> so I said, well, I, I don't know, reach out to this person and see if they would be willing to talk with me and perhaps there can be some kind of collaboration. So Jan did introduce me to Jonathan. And as it turned out, Jonathan also lived in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live. And so I invited him to Pixar to have lunch and we hit it off. And um, it, that began what became a, you know, a multi-year collaboration. I had never written a book before and Jonathan had, had written many books on the makings of, uh, of big films. Um, but he also did not have any research at that point about The Shining, and I had amassed quite a bit and had, had started doing some interviews. So um, it really, you know, we were kind of two pieces of a puzzle that fit together uh, quite nicely on this project. Um, we didn't know we were going to be publishing with Tashin right out the gate. Um, that was our desire because Tashin had already published a number of other books in conjunction with the Kubrick estate. But at the time, they weren't willing to commit to another one because they still hadn't released their book on the making of 2001. And I think they wanted to see how that was going to do first. So I forged ahead and basically self-financed the writing of this book um, and all of the research uh, with the hope <laughs> and expectation that somebody would publish it eventually. And, and again, I hoped it would be Tashin. Um, Ultimately, as we got deeper into the project and the 2001 book came out and was a big success, um, I approached Tashin again, and I ended up having a meeting with Benedict Tashin down in Los Angeles, and uh, he was very much interested in, in doing the project and moving forward with it. So, um, so at you know, after some degree of uh, negotiations, we finally worked out a deal to do the book, and um, uh, we continued to work on it. We continued to write it. Um, uh, and at some point uh, later in the game, we, we started meeting with um, uh, the design firm MM in Paris. Um, they had also designed the Tashin Napoleon book and the 2001 book. And so they seemed like a good fit to do the Shining book. Um, I actually met with them very early on before uh, I even had the deal with Tashin because I knew they had done these other books and I was trying to figure out how to put together the most compelling presentation to Tashin. And so um, I got them involved uh, a little bit uh, to, to help with that. And I think I think Benedict was happy that I had already been talking with them. And, you know, I seemed like I was being very proactive with the project. Um, 
one of the things that I remember talking about with uh, with the two uh, men uh, at MM um, um, was uh, the scrapbook. Uh, in Stephen King's novel, there is a scrapbook uh, that kind of recounts the sordid history of the Overlook. And uh, it's a big part of the, the book. And it actually, at one point, was a big part of the movie. Um, there were many, many scenes shot having to do with the scrapbook and Jack finding the scrapbook and starting to become obsessed with it. And and his obsession with the scrapbook ended up kind of mirroring his slow descent into madness. Um, and for some reason, Stanley decided to edit that completely out of the film at some point. Um, I think it most likely had to do with time. But I think, again, it probably had to also had to do with him wanting to be more enigmatic um, about why Jack was descending into madness. Um, but the thing is, many scenes um, had been shot that had the scrapbook in it that, you know, he, he couldn't remove the scrapbook from the shots. So when you watch the film now, you can see the scrapbook. You can see it laying open on Jack's writing table in quite a few scenes. And um, I became kind of fascinated with this notion of like, these kind of ghostly echoes being left behind in the film of ideas that didn't make it into the finished film. Um, and as it turns out, they had a scrapbook in the Kubrick archive. Um, I, I eventually figured out that it wasn't the, the scrapbook that was actually used in the film. It was more of a mock-up, like a proof of concept that had been created. Um, but I told uh, um, um, the guys at MM about this and they became really fascinated with this notion. And so they, pretty early on wanted to do some kind of facsimile of this scrapbook and have it be part of the book project. So ultimately um, they came up with the idea of initially doing two books, that there would be a, a book that would be very text heavy, that would be the actual making of The Shining. Um, but then there would also be this scrapbook, which would be essentially a photo folio, um, just featuring one photo per page, a big, oversized, beautiful scrapbook. And eventually um, I, I had ideas about including more ephemera uh, with the book, with the special edition at any rate. And so we designed this third volume, which is um, kind of a facsimile of Jack's box of typing paper. And when you open that box, um, you have copies of all the original typewritten, hand typewritten pages uh, of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Um, but when you lift those out, there, there are a number of other sub volumes, different kind of booklets and things in that box. And it allowed us to kind of include some material more in depth that for which there, there really wasn't another place uh, in the other books. So yeah, the final uh, Tashin special edition is three volumes, the box of typing paper, the ephemera box, then the, the making of, uh, and then this, the scrapbook that we created. Yeah, I should point out at this point that I think the making of section is some 900 pages long. I mean, it is. And it, I, I said it was text heavy, which it is, but it's also very loaded with photographs and documents as well. Yeah, it was about 900 pages. Um, Tashin has never published a book like that that's so text heavy. They traditionally are very image forward with minimal captions or sometimes some essays. Um, but I told Benedict from the beginning, if we were going to do this book, I, you know, I, I set out to create the definitive 
text on the making of The Shining, and uh, that's what I wanted to do. And he he was supportive from the beginning, and and MM was very uh, on board for the challenge of designing that book as well. So um, that's part of why they made that book smaller. It's it's very hand holdable. It's kind of an oversized paperback almost. Uh, we wanted a book that people could sit in a chair and read and not have to sit at a table, which you definitely have to do with the scrapbook volume. Mm. Well, it's kind of amazing that you convinced the publisher to give you 900 pages just on the making of The Shining. I mean, I think any number of authors out there would love (laughs) that space to go through all of uh, Kubrick's films, let alone any other filmmaker. I should say that the text was probably about a third again longer, the first draft. So we did uh, we did have to make a lot of judicious cuts to get it down to fighting weight, but it still is um, quite long, but hopefully engrossing for people that are interested in Kubrick and the film. Oh, I, I certainly enjoyed it. Now I'm desperate to know what, what, what got left out in that final edit. That, uh, um, that we, <laughs> Just we a lot of little out. things all over the book. Um, we probably, I think we, we spent a lot more time talking about Vivian Kubrick's documentary, uh, Stanley's daughter, who was 17 at the time. Um, uh, he tasked her with filming a documentary on the making of the film. So she was on set nearly every day through the whole production filming and amassed nearly 50 hours of footage, um, which was ultimately edited down into a, you know, maybe 25 minute film or so. Um, so we, you know, we spent more time probably talking about that documentary. I remember cutting out a lot of material having to do with that. So, but I'm glad it exists. I'm glad that I have this kind of longer version, which maybe is truly the quintessential definitive version. But what people are getting with the book is uh, as close to that as we could come. What's interesting about the documentary, just to sidetrack a sec, is that um, it, it's often praised as sort of unvarnished um, window into Kubrick at work. And it's some of the only footage we have apart from a little bit of footage from Full Metal Jacket. And it doesn't always present him in the best light. Yeah, he edited it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah, yeah. He actually didn't edit it, but he um, he most assuredly had control over it uh, and what ended up in it. As I said earlier, Stanley um, very much was in control of his own image, and um, with the documentary, I think here's here's what I've kind of learned about Stan. One of the things I learned about Stanley is that he he actually was very introverted. He could wheel control on the set, but he was ultimately an introverted man. He wasn't highly social. Um, And I know from many accounts that he often felt intimidated around Jack Nicholson because Jack was just such a big personality and very social. And and Stanley, I think, felt, I don't know, like he needed to go toe-to-toe with him a little bit. Um, With the documentary, yes, it's interesting to note what kinds of moments uh, are in the film that show Stanley working. And in pretty much every case, there are moments where he's being a little tough. Um, and I know, I know that that was not how he was on the set all the time. You know, he could get that way if he was frustrated or somebody had messed up or any number of reasons, but by and large, he was a, you know, he was a kind methodical man who treated his crew really well and they were very devoted to him. Um, and, and, and his actors, you know, for the most part, love him as well. So yes, you look at those moments in the film, like where he's kind of, uh, admonishing Shelley Duvall for missing a cue and 
messing up a shot and uh, and other moments where he's being kind of a little more firm. And I have to think that he, you know, those moments are in the film because he wanted them there because I think he thought it made him look like the director that he knew people thought him to be, you know? He didn't he didn't want to be shown being vulnerable, even though he was filmed being vulnerable many times. Um, and unfortunately, that's led to some some problems, because like with the Shelley Duvall uh, moment in particular, people look at that moment where he's kind of raising his voice with her. I don't think he's being abusive. He's just he's raising his voice because he's frustrated and she had messed up a shot that was very difficult and. It was done toward the end of production when everybody was very burnt out and crispy. Um, so he raises his voice with her and people look at that moment in the film and they extrapolate out, oh, he must have been like that all the time. That must be how he treated everybody and that just must be how Stanley Kubrick was as a person. Um, and again, not the case. Um, you know, People like to write endlessly about how abused Shelley Duvall was on the film and they they blame the experience for the mental illness that she suffered later in life. And it's all really just crazy. Um, when I discuss this, I, I really like to kind of put the power and the voice with Shelley, which, which is where it deserves to be. And Shelley herself has spoken many times on this subject throughout the years. And in every case, she only has nice things to say about Stanley. Um, she acknowledges that it was a very difficult shoot at times, very challenging for her, and that she maybe didn't always agree with Stanley's methods. But at the end of the day, she realized that everything was a means to an end and Stanley was just always pushing her to give the best performance that she could give. And she, you know, she talks a lot about how much she learned from Stanley and how he helped make her a better actress. And um, um, so... Anyway, but again, that's another example of Stanley making a decision to portray himself in a certain way. And, you know, decades later, it came back to bite him because people make a lot of assumptions because of those few fleeting moments that you do see him being tough and raising his voice in the documentary. It's, it's interesting because he, he did. Uh, I don't think he liked uh, uh, how the British tabloid, tabloid press, which is kind of unique, <laughs> um, treated him, particularly in the wake of a Clockwork Orange. And yet, some of the decisions he he made um, sort of fed into that, like presenting himself almost as the ogre figure um, in in this in this documentary. Well, he didn't do a lot to fight it, for sure. Yeah. And if anything, especially after Clockwork Orange, because he actually was worried for his life and his family's life uh, after the reaction to that film, he became incredibly private after that. That was really the trigger point for him to become as private as he ultimately became. Um, but yeah, um, he yeah, he did often. Well, here's the other thing is if you read any interviews with Stanley Kubrick over the years, he was always in control of those interviews. I mean, his deal, you know, he would only agree to do interviews if he had the opportunity to edit the interview. Because again, he wanted to make sure that he sounded intelligent. And, and I think that he didn't trust himself speaking extemporaneously in an interview to not um, sound anything less than brilliant. So you read these interviews and you're like, wow, he is so well-spoken and, 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 and uh, uh, you know, has thought all of these details through. But, you know, again, the reality is he, uh, that was another construction in a way. I mean, it's still himself. It's still his voice and it's still his ideas, but it's very curated. Um, 
The only thing I heard about that he actually really got upset about, uh, Christiana would talk about how Stanley was endlessly annoyed with people's obsession with how many takes he shot on his films. And first, I should say that because I have the receipts and I know how many takes he shot on every single shot in the entire film, Stanley was not obsessive with the number of takes he shot. There were very few scenes where he went into high numbers. And in most of those cases, it was because Scatman Crothers couldn't remember his lines properly. Um, But Stanley did sometimes shoot a lot of takes and he, he just did not understand why anybody cared about that. He would say to Christiana, you know, nobody asks a a painter why they used a certain number of brushstrokes to create their painting. No, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. All that matters is the finished work. And he, he didn't understand why people had this odd obsession. And I'm sure he probably spins in his grave knowing that it, it still happens. I mean, it's like you hear Stanley Kubrick and a lot, for a lot of people, they immediately think, oh, lots of takes. <laughs> yeah. And, and often my understanding is, you know, like you say, he, he had a preference for classically trained British actors who remembered their lines um, and not all um, non-theatre actors remembered their lines. Uh, uh, so, so you know, that was the basic thing, but then he wanted something interesting. So if you're getting your lines wrong um, at first and, 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 and it's uninteresting and you're getting your lines wrong and then you get your lines right and it's uninteresting, then, of course, it's not always his fault, is it? No. And again, what's fault? I mean, what does it matter? how long it takes to get there. I mean, Stanley Stanley was responsible with his budget. So he knew that to be able to work the way he wanted to work and to potentially go long on his schedules, you know, where do you, where do you find the money to support that? And he found it by having small crews. He didn't have massive crews on his films. There were times on The Shining where there were only a handful of people on the set. Um, and he did that so that he wasn't paying a bunch of people money that he would rather see up on screen. Indeed. Um, the final question, well, sort of penultimate question. What in, in this course of the research, what, is there is there something you've come across that, that you know, revelatory discovery that, that um, kind of changed your view of the film or gave you deeper insight um, in, in this in this decade that you plus that you've been spending on it? Well, there are a lot of small specific things. Um, you know, I. I mentioned the scrapbook, um, but there were other there were other story ideas that Stanley shot and ultimately abandoned, um, and you and you see kind of ghostly echoes of those left behind in the film as well. Um, my experience watching the film now is very different than prior to creating this book because I now see the the production of the film and the scenes that he shot. Uh, that aren't in the film, I, I kind of see all that as I watch the film. So it's kind of forever changed my relationship with the film. And it's interesting. I, I, I interviewed Steven Spielberg for the book and, and ultimately he agreed to write the foreword. And um, one of the things he said in his foreword, uh, he said, basically, you know, you have to read this book and the moment you finish it, watch The Shining again. And I don't care if you've seen it 50 times, you'll never see it the same way again. And I think he's speaking to just what I was talking about, that you, it, it kind of, the book exposes you to so many moments and images and just the whole path of developing the film and writing it and, and shooting it and ultimately editing it that, um, it's, it's, it's just not the same. And I don't know that that's a good thing. 
necessarily. I mean, I, you know, I do respect that Kubrick just wants the films to exist as they are. David Lynch is very much the same way. He doesn't like to talk about his films. He doesn't like to talk about how they were made. He just wants them to exist and to be interpreted as people want to interpret them. Kubrick was similar in that regard. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm a film fan and I'm a fan of Kubrick and a fan of the film. And um, I wanted to create this. And I think if nothing else, uh, I, I hope it continues to inspire uh, future filmmakers and help them learn about Stanley's methodologies, uh, how he worked and how he created the the brilliant films that he created. And um, I, I wanted to offer a, a, a window into that. At the end of the day, the, the, my biggest revelation, I think, honestly, is I, what I said earlier, is that it 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 humanized Stanley Kubrick. I feel like I know Stanley in a way that I didn't prior. And 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 in as much as this book is about the making of The Shining, it's also very much about Stanley Kubrick. There are a lot of sidebars in the book that talk about different aspects of how he worked and his relationships with actors, et cetera. And there's a lot of material in there that I, I've never seen before anywhere else. So I, th I think that it will also give scholars and fans of Kubrick uh, kind of new insights into who he was as a person and a filmmaker. And do you have a theory about the film? In terms of meanings? Yeah. No, I don't. You don't want to put your neck out. I have one. <laughs> I mean, I don't have like, I don't have like crazy theories. I have theories about why he made some of the choices he made in terms of changing Stephen King's novel. Um, I have theories about, say, you know, there's this moment at the end of the film where Shelley Duvall is running around the hotel and the hotel is kind of throwing all these scary images at her. And one of them is her running into the lobby and seeing all these cobwebs and skeletons. And it's a moment that's very out of character with the rest of the film. And Stanley actually ended up cutting it out of the subsequent European release of the film. And, and most people I talk to just hate that moment and they don't understand why it's there. And even people who worked on the film never understood why he put it in and but i feel like i know why he put it in and um and it was a case where he then kind of second guessed that choice and took it out but um um do you want me to talk about that for just yeah, a second yeah, yeah so there's a moment early in the film when jack is being interviewed for the for the job at the hotel and uh after he's been told about the grisly history of the hotel specifically the former caretaker who killed his family with an ax. Um, the, the manager asks what Jack, you know, how Jack's wife will be with all this information. And Jack says, she'll love it. Um, she really will. She, she's a confirmed ghost story and horror film addict. And I, my thinking is that, you know, that line is there for a reason. And, um, you know, I think um, I, this is my, just my, interpretation. I think that Stanley saw that as a moment where the hotel was hearing what Jack had to say. And at the end of the film, you know, the, the hotel desperately wants Danny and wants his power, his shining. And the only possible person that can save him after Dick Halloran is murdered by Jack is Wendy. And so the whole climax of the film is Wendy running around the hotel trying to find Danny, desperately trying to save him. And the hotel is throwing everything it can at her to try to stop her. And one of the things, I, I think it's just trying anything that it can. And one of the things it tries throwing at her are these kind of uh, stereotypical ghost story images of cobwebs and skeletons and um uh, again, it's totally out of keeping with the style and lighting and design of the rest of the film. It's a, you know, it's a horror film that's shot in bright light. Yet here is this kind of spooky, heavily shadowed moment, blue light, 
cobweb skeletons and why is it there? I mean, it does freak her out in the moment, but it doesn't work. She keeps going and keeps trying to find him. So I think that's what that was about. Um, you could argue whether that's successful or not. I think the fact that so many people have a problem with it maybe means it wasn't. And Stanley probably recognized that. And that's why it was one of the things he decided to remove when he did the European cut of the film. Yeah, I only grew up with the uh, I grew up with the European cut, and I only saw the um, the longer sort of North American version much later in life. Um, um, and obviously, having grown up with one version, I, I sort of prefer it. Um, As people do, everyone yeah. I talk to who grew up with the European <laughs> version will fight tooth and nail that that's the best version, and I I prefer the longer one for a number of reasons. I mean, it's the, it's the version I lived with for decades before I ever saw the European cut, and there are things in it that I think are mistakes to remove, but it doesn't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, I asked Leon Vitale, uh, uh, Stanley's longtime assistant, which version Stanley thought was the definitive finished version. And he said, well, definitely the European version. And uh, because he, you know, he was, he was fighting against the clock at the end to get the movie cut and finished on time. And, um, you know, he, he, he never felt like he had quite enough time to, to, cut the film the way he wanted to. And so I think the the fact that the film opened to such negative reviews initially um, gave Stanley license to keep working on it and keep shaping it. Um, I asked Leon why, if, if the, long, uh, the shorter version was the definitive version, why does the longer American version still exist in the world on video? And he said that Stanley had a rule that if a movie was released in a certain way, in a, in a certain territory, that that was the version that should always be in that territory in the world. Um, so that was his thinking. And it's very interesting because I, I, I don't know that I can think of any other movie where two different versions exist. I suppose there's all the versions of Blade Runner, which have a connection to The Shining. <laughs> yeah, Blade Runner, yes. But I mean, that yes, they exist, but Ridley would probably just want <laughs> whatever he finally ended up on to be the version, the only version that's out there. My my theory about um, the, the scenes you mentioned in the in the in the North American version is that um, that Shelley can shine uh, just as Jack and Danny can shine, and so what she's seeing when um, she sees those images are, are images from the past. Well, definitely. I mean, it came from somewhere, right? Um, you know, Danny's ability to shine. So she, um, don't all mothers have some small bit of shining in them? I think so. <laughs> so it makes sense. Uh, I mean, Jack has some in him too, because he sees things in the hotel. Um, anyway, yeah. Again. Um, well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you very much for your, for your time, for your time today. Um, but before we go, are, are you going to be working on another book anytime soon? Uh, no, I don't have any plans for another book. I don't know that I have another one in me after working so hard on this. I think this was the thing that I needed to get out into the world. But um, I've uh, I've long learned that anytime I think I'm done or I'm not going to do something again, you know, if the right thing comes along, I'll 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 consider it. So you never know. I know Tashin would like to work with me again. Well, that's great. Another Kubrick or someone else entirely. <laughs> I'll leave that to somebody else who's obsessed with another film. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And um, take care. Absolutely. Great talking with you. Bye-bye.